Wow, I hope that your heart was as filled with rejoicing at singing this great hymn. Um, Just love Jesus. Don't you love Jesus? It's just great to be saved. I had such a good time this morning in Sunday school teaching on adoption and looking forward to um, that special day when the Lord Jesus comes to take us home. And we rejoice there's a day coming. Uh, Those who have adopted call it gotcha day. It's the day that after the initial visits and all of the paperwork and the paying of the fees and everything's done, there's that moment when they actually go and pick them up from the orphanage. I want to remind you, my brothers and sisters, as great as this earth is, this is an orphanage we're living in. Everybody here is sick. Everybody here is dying. The best you're going to get out of this is maybe live to be the oldest person in the world, like 120. And then you're out of here. But you know what? Because of what Christ has done for us, he is coming to get me. Death is no longer to be feared. Death is now my servant. The only thing death can do for me is come and pick me up and take me to Jesus. That's all. And so I do not have to live in fear. I live in joy. So join me in that joy, in the Beatitudes. We've been studying together. We're going to be touching on several scriptures as we launch into our message today. So I want you to kind of get your Bible ready to move around a little bit. In fact, we'll hit about five quick places as we begin. I want to start by reading to you what is in your outline from that great prince of preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Listen to his quote. I've compared the Beatitudes to a ladder of light, and I've remarked that every one of them rises above and out of those which precede it. So you will notice that the character mentioned here is higher than those which had been given before, higher than that of the man who is in poor of spirit or mourns. Those things concern himself, yet he is feeble, and out of that weakness there grows meekness of spirit, which makes him endure wrongs for others from others. Excuse me. But to be merciful is more than that, for the man now not merely endures wrongs, but he confers benefits. The beatitude before us, this one concerns hungering and thirsting after righteousness, but here the man has got beyond mere righteousness. He has risen beyond the seeking of that which is right into the seeking of that which is good and kind and generous and the doing of kindly things toward his fellow man. This great preacher lays out something we've been saying all along. Each beatitude builds on the previous one. Blessed are the poor in spirit. We come to God spiritually destitute like beggars. Blessed are those who mourn. We weep over the sin that brought us into that destitution. Then we move into blessed are the meek. They shall inherit the earth. We now fall under this wonderful, gracious reign of Jesus over our hearts as he puts his yoke around us and guides us and then hungering and thirsting for righteousness we desire that which we lack and as God fills us up with that suddenly something happens it begins to spill over into others 
when I, because of my spiritual destitution and mourning and meekness, begin to dine on the righteousness of God in Christ and to fill myself with the good things out of the storehouse of God and His Word, I begin to be filled up with something that will make its way out of me through my actions. And that is first and foremost characterized in Matthew 5 by mercy. By my extending the righteous nature of God out of me into the lives of those who are around me. And so as we jump into the text today, we're coming off of last Sunday talking about mercy. And we're going to talk about a little bit of a different kind of mercy today or different kinds of mercy. Sometimes we hit a text like we did last week and we really nail that forgiveness thing and we really cope with it and we begin to juggle with it and we say okay i understand that and i'm, I'm kind of clean there and then we forget that mercy has a whole different nature as well in that not just of forgiving but that of giving and so we look beginning today at five kinds or types of mercy so number one there are five primary types of mercy We're going to walk through the scriptures with these to kind of get your Bible ready, and we'll just plot these as we go. First, the mercy of release, which we call forgiveness. That's what we studied last week, and we find that in Matthew 18. Let's go there together. Matthew 18, and this is the text from last week. Jump all the way down to verse 33. Here's how that flows from us. Here's how it fills us. God has had mercy on us. Now it extends to others, and it extends in the act of forgiving, verse 33. This is Jesus speaking, speaking in the words of the king to whom we will give account. He says, should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave, even as I had mercy on you. So the mercy of release, we call that forgiveness. Now, it's important to understand the order of things. God first fills us with mercy through the experience of the grace of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. We trust His perfect life, God in human skin. We trust His death as a substitute, paying the penalty for our sins. His resurrection on the third day. His ascension to stand at the right hand, sit at the right hand of God the Father and intercede for us. We trust that mercy fills us and mercy spills out of us into the lives of others. First, in forgiveness. Letter B, the mercy of relief. When Jesus was conducting his ministries, making his way through the crowds, And in Matthew chapter 9, he runs into someone, and it's a pair of blind men in verse 27 of Matthew 9. And Jesus passed on from there. Two blind men followed him, crying out, saying, Have mercy on us, son of David. So this is the mercy of relief from suffering. These guys know the power of Jesus, Jesus has an ability to relieve their suffering, and he does. He touches them, and they see. So there's the mercy of release, and then there's the mercy of relief. Letter C, there's the mercy of rescue. 
Rescue from a situation. We won't go to this text yet, but it's the one that we read at the beginning of the service today. And Wendy beautifully explained during the children's message that there is a kind of mercy that rescues someone from their situation. They're in a position, they're in a situation, and we have an ability to step into their situation and bring them out of that situation because we have mercy on them. Letter D, there's a fourth type of mercy. There's the mercy of redemption, redemption from sin. We have to go all the way almost to the end of the Bible to get this one. Jude, right before we get to the end of the Bible, Jude, Hebrews, James, Peter, John, Jude, and then the Revelation. Jude chapter 1, let's go there, verses 22 and 23. This will be an important one for you to mark because we're going to kind of be touching on this a little bit later. Jude chapter 1, it's really just one chapter, and go all the way down to verse 22. Now, it's interesting, in verse 22 and 23, he's going to mention the word mercy twice. Look at what he says. And have mercy on some who are doubting. We'll touch on that in just a moment. Then he goes, save others, snatching them out of the fire. This is the mercy of redemption. People are perishing all around us. Our neighborhoods, our workplace, our school, all around us, people are perishing. And in in a very literal sense, they're sliding into a flame. It's hard for us to envision that. The idea that a person sitting beside me is literally sliding into a flame. Because of their lost state, they're literally milliseconds away from their soul sitting in a literal, burning, eternal fire. It's hard for us to envision that we read in Luke when we have the story of the rich man and Lazarus and and you hear this rich man crying out, saying, Have mercy on me, Father Abraham, and let Lazarus dip his finger into cool water and just touch the tip of my tongue. What's he asking for? He's asking for mercy. My brothers and sisters, it's too late. This man is in a state where mercy cannot help him. But while he sits by you on the bus, while he sits by you at school, while she sits across from you at the office, while they sit with us at their dinner table, we have the opportunity to communicate to them the way that they can be snatched out of... Look at what he says. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. So there is a kind of mercy that looks at a person's spiritual plight and sees where they are milliseconds from hell at any given moment. 
and mercifully has compassion on them to reach out and embrace them with the good news of Jesus. That's what we're doing this week with the My Hope America with Billy Graham outreach church-wide. Many of our homes have signed up that they're going to show. We're going to distribute the DVDs tonight at 5.30. We're going to preview it with you. We're going to share some instructions with you about how to carry this out. I hope you have targeted someone with love and grace to let them know about Jesus, to invite them to your home. This week we're hoping that we'll do it as much, many of us as possible on Thursday, but others have planned for Friday or Saturday because of schedules. That's great, but we have the opportunity to snatch them out of the flame. And then letter E tells us there's another kind of mercy called the mercy of restoration from straying. Join me in James chapter 2 and James chapter 5, just a little bit back from where we were. The mercy of restoration. In James chapter 2, it says in verse 13, if you'll join me there, James 2.13, for judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So here is the mercy of restoration at work in James chapter 5. Go to verse 19. Here's what happens. We do church. People come to church. People connect with church for various reasons. Sometimes legitimately coming into church, hearing the good news of Jesus Christ, being saved, born again, being free from their sin and their debt and and just gloriously redeemed. Some come to church and they connect through friendship. They're not redeemed, but they're they're here and they, they go through the motions, maybe even the motion of baptism or church membership, but they're still not really right with God. But those folks who really do get saved, and those folks who really don't get saved, they, they all mingle together. We gather on Sundays and Wednesdays and gather in our homes, and we, and we carry out the functions of church. And then along the way, one of those brothers or one of those sisters or one of those appear, apparently uh, brothers or apparently sisters or what Paul would call so-called brothers or sisters, all of a sudden they kind of stray a little bit. They kind of stray. They just step off the path. They're walking in fellowship with Jesus, and then one day they just, they're just not. They're, they're just openly or willfully or even hiddenly sinning, and God brings them across our path and gives us the knowledge of where they're at spiritually. And very often, we get real muddle-headed at that point. And we withdraw from them, not knowing what to say. Or... We stay right beside them, but we don't talk about what's really going on. We just let them continue in their sin, thinking that being nice and just being their friend is going to change their ways. And we find out later that really has no effect because they stay in their sin. And the Bible teaches us that the merciful thing to do, whether they're genuinely saved, and God only knows, Or they're not genuinely saved. God only knows. The merciful thing to do is to step into their life and tell them the truth. There are two reasons for that. First, if they connected with church and they're not really saved, do you know what they are? They're deceived and they're milliseconds away from hell. 
And we should have great concern that a brother or sister or so-called brother or sister could be walking in a way that says, hey, I'm not saved. I'm not a Christian. And so we step into their lives and we tell them the truth in order to guide them back on the path to save their soul from hell. But you say, Pastor, but what if they're already saved? Why should I, why should I step in? Why should I intervene? If, 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 if they are a Christian, why should I get involved, put myself at risk with them with this thing called restoration from straying? What, what's, what? Here's why. If you knew that a person was about to jump off of a cliff, maybe in a suicidal gesture or just an act of stupidity, all right, and you knew that it would take their life, you immediately would say, oh, I need to intervene in this. I need to step into this. I need to be involved in this because I don't want them to lose their life, okay? And so when somebody's committing what we might call spiritual suicide and they're just kind of jumping off of Jesus saying, I don't want anything to do with them anymore, we want to step in and we want to be a part of their rescue. There's no doubt. But sometimes, here's what happens. Because we think they're saved, we say, well, they may be committing spiritual suicide, but the truth is, since a Christian can't lose their salvation, this can't cause their soul to die. Now I want to ask you a question. Just because it won't kill them to jump off the cliff, but it'll break all the bones in their body, are you going to not be concerned? Are you suddenly going to justify not in involving yourself in their life because of this? You say, well, they can't lose their salvation. So if they continue in sin, listen, do you know what the Lord says about those who belong to Him who continue in sin? Hebrews 12 says that He disciplines them. Have you ever seen the discipline of the Lord? Go look at David's life. David sees Bathsheba. He's peering down from the roof. He sees her in a state that catches his attention. He commits adultery. He falls into this horrid sin. Now, if you could have talked to David just before he jumped off of that balcony to go and retrieve Bathsheba from her bath and bring her to his house, would you have wanted to intervene in what was coming? What came after that? Do you remember the baby... What happened to the baby that was conceived? The baby died. Would you like to have rescued him from that? Would you like to have rescued him from what God said was going to happen because of what he did? What did the Bible say? The sword will never, what? Depart from your household. So you say, well, David couldn't lose his salvation, so why should I involve myself with what he's doing up on the roof? Isn't that kind of judgmental if I jump into his life? My brother and sister, I want to share with you, when you step into the life of someone who is either a believer or an unbeliever, you're either saving their soul from hell or saving their body from incredible discipline. The Lord says whom He loves, He will discipline. When we run into Hebrews chapter 12, there's the story. At the end, He says, Strengthen the feeble legs, strengthen the knees that are weak, so that that joint which is erring, will not be pulled out of joint. Now what they were talking about was the practice of a shepherd. How did a shepherd discipline a continually straying sheep that belonged to him? Historians tell us that in that day, the shepherd would find that sheep that kept straying. 
and he would either break or dislocate one of their legs. In order that that sheep had to ride on the shepherd for an indefinite period of time until he was healed so that he could get better. When we talk about mercy, my brothers and sisters, it is never merciful for any one of us to leave anyone in their sin. Never. Please don't fall into Satan's trick that it is merciful to leave someone alone. It is not. What does James say in verse 19, chapter 5? Here's him stating what I've shared with you. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and will cover a multitude of sin. That's merciful. It is stepping into the life of one who's been among us who has strayed and speaking truth to them from the Lord's Word so that they can come back to the fold. If they're lost, they can be saved. If they're saved, they can be prevented from their discipline. Now, having looked at these five kinds, release, relief, rescue, redemption, and restoration, and our responsibility to be engaged in that, jump with me now over to Luke chapter 10. Let's look at the story we've heard twice today through our reading and through Wendy sharing with us, and let's look at seven qualities or characteristics of mercy. In any of these five different kinds of mercy, these qualities show up. And so we see the qualities in Luke chapter 10. And so, jumping into the the story, let's begin by reviewing verses 25 through 29. Behold, a certain lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What's written in the law? How How does it read to you? And he answered and he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself. Now let's stop there for a second because we need to understand what is the job of a lawyer in Jesus' day. The job of the lawyer was to give written interpretations of how to carry out the Scripture in practical life. That was their job. They were to kind of take what was written in the Testament, in the law, the Torah, and put it into practical ways to obey it. Good lawyers would give clear, concise, good interpretations Bad lawyers were always looking for one thing. They were looking for the loophole. You see, they thought differently about the Lord's Word. What they wanted to do is find every way that you could to avoid obeying the commands so that they didn't inconvenience your life. They were experts on what the commands said, but their interpretations were the interpretations of looking for a loophole so that I can carry on my life the way I want to without being inconvenienced by the burden of the truth. And so they were experts at wrangling words 
So that's what he's doing. He asked Jesus a question. How does a person get saved? How do they know they're going to heaven? Who's going to heaven? Jesus says, well, how does it read to you? Well, being an expert and having heard Jesus speak before, he quotes Jesus. It says the two great commands, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, you got it. Do it. Oh, do it? Let me, time, time out. Can I qualify? Which qualification? Who is my neighbor? During the time of Jesus, in some of the writings that are still existent outside of the Scriptures, the lawyers had written a code for living. And in one of those codes for living, the lawyers had written that you should not have mercy on a sinner. It was exactly how the code was written. That because a person is a sinner, you are automatically exempted from doing what God commanded you. You were automatically one who didn't have to do that. Love my neighbor, sinner, <laughs> I'm free. And so that's how this man had interpreted and how the writings had gone. And so this guy wanted Jesus to help him qualify the absence of mercy from his life, the absence of love from his life. And so Jesus answered by telling a story. So we're going to find out letter A. Mercy will never originate from a self-justifying heart. If what you're trying to do is justify yourself before God without submitting and surrendering yourself to Him, mercy will never be found in you. It will never originate. Notice what it says there in verse 29. But wishing to justify Himself. It will never originate from a self-justifying heart. If you are looking for the loopholes, don't expect to show mercy. Because you're not in what God wants you to be in. If you're the looking for the loopholes, something that will never surprise your heart is the desire to be merciful to those that you don't like. And so we learn that this guy wants uh, an out. He wants an excuse. He wants a way to be sort of exonerated from not showing mercy. So Jesus starts the story. We get that story in verse 30. Look at the first part of the story. A certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him. So he's laying there naked and hurt. He can't, he can't get up. He's wounded, so he can't travel. He's stripped bare. He has nothing on. They've taken everything that he's got, and they left him half dead. They left him four dead. And by chance, a certain priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, what did he do? He didn't just pass by. What does it say? He got, he got away from him. He was kind of thinking, you know, that guy's, that guy's laying there nude. I don't need to look on that. I, I'm going to avoid this altogether. I can't soil myself with this. So he goes on, and then it says... And likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side, 
also. But notice in verse 33, but a certain Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion, and he came to him. Letter B, mercy is a contrast to the normal, indifferent, accepted way of an unredeemed life. When we talk about shining as a light in the darkness, light is a contrast to dark. Here's a priest full of darkness, unconcerned, unredeemed, indifferent. Here's a Levite, another man of great religious standing, unconcerned, unredeemed, indifferent, passes by. Not only just passing, but trying to get as far from him as possible. Mercy is a contrast to the normal, indifferent, accepted way of an unredeemed life. Listen carefully. God is orchestrating everything. There is no such thing called chance. You are never anywhere by chance. Where you live right now, it's where God planted you. Where you work right now, it's where God placed you. Where you go to school right now, God put you there. There is nothing going on by accident. He has arranged, He has orchestrated, He has set up every one of His lamps so that He can put them on lampstands. What does Jesus say? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. Glorify your Father who is in heaven. No man lights a lamp and covers it with a bushel, but he sets it up on a lampstand. You don't get to choose your lampstand. You don't. God chooses it. And every moment of every day, God is orchestrating lampstand moments. He's doing it everywhere in unseen, unknown ways. He is orchestrating lampstand moments. A place where a priest should have brightly shown, the priest shows us that he's in darkness. A place where a Levite should have brilliantly displayed the glory of the inheritance of the sons of Israel, he was walking in darkness. And so... That leads us to letter C and pains us a bit. Mercy usually interrupts the smooth flow of our lives. Notice in verse 33, but a certain Samaritan who was on a journey. Jesus doesn't note that the Levite's on a journey, doesn't note that the priest is on a journey, Jesus notes that the Samaritan's on a journey, which means he's the only one who had somewhere to go. If you wanted a legitimate reason not to do what is being commanded, the only one who's carrying one is the guy who has a place to go. He has a journey. He's got a place to be. And God says, time out, interruption. He steps in. My brothers and sisters, as we go about the smooth flow of our organized, overly busy lives, We need to understand God wants to interrupt you. And it is arrogant for us to say that our business that we tend to on this earth is ever more important than the business of heaven. 
It is the height of arrogance that we tell Jesus where we want to shine and how we want to shine. Sometimes while you are on a journey and you've got somewhere to be, it's when God's going to step in and He's going to place you on a lampstand for all to see. He's on a journey. He's interrupted. What happens with that interruption? Well, look in letter D. Mercy provokes compassion within the merciful. Notice verse 33, something that's a huge contrast to the Levite and the priest. But a certain Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. Now, the word here is gut. It's the word that if you read the old King James in several um, passages, it says, if there be any bowels of compassion. It means that feeling that you get in your gut when you're really moved by something. When something breaks through all your defenses, when something gets through all of those layers of what you have built up on the outside, it's when something penetrates down and that moment that you get that sinking feeling, that sick, sorrowful, grieving, anxious feeling about something. That's what the word means. It meant for your stomach to be upset. It describes it in beautiful detail. He sees this guy, and rather as something to be avoided, something moves inside him. Why? Well, obviously those first beatitudes had already sunk into this man's soul. Somewhere along the way, this Samaritan had become poor in spirit. He had mourned over his sin. He had become meek and surrendered himself. He had become hungry and thirsty for righteousness, which he dined on, which filled him up, which seeing another human being caused him compassion. It is a mark of your walk with God. What happens to your gut when you see somebody suffering? It is an inescapable indicator of where you are. If the sight of suffering hardens you and makes you avoid, if the sight of suffering brings nothing but cold judgment, I want to warn you. Jesus is talking about eternity right now. And He's talking about the marks of men who will live forever. The marks of women who have eternal life. This man says, Jesus, who's going to heaven? And do you know what Jesus said? This guy is. This guy has the marks of redemption all over him. Because his heart is not self-justifying, his life is a contrast, and the act of God interrupting him is not something he avoids, he embraces, and he is moved by compassion. And notice in letter E, mercy moves toward the needy, not away from them. Mercy moves toward the needy, not away from them. Look at what it says there in verse 33. A certain Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him when he saw him, he felt compassion, and he 
came to him. The Levite went away from him. The priest avoided. But here is a guy he sees, and all of a sudden, all of that hungering and thirsting for righteousness that has been digested into the heart of this man to know the living God wells up. It fills and then it spills. My brother and sister, what we are filled with determines our behavior. When we are filled with the redemption and the Spirit of God, it spills out into the redemptive acts of our lives. Here, he moves toward him. Notice, He came to Him. He came to Him. Do you see that? It's so simple. There He is. Two highly religious men avoided. This guy says, Look, one of God's creatures, made in the image of God, broken down, shattered, stripped, Helpless, what do I do? I go to Him. And He goes. This road being dangerous, this man's putting himself at risk. But he goes toward Him, letter F. Mercy is meticulous in its care because of its view of humanity and creation. I added at and creation later, so it's not in your outline. You may want to write that in. Because of its view of humanity and creation. Mercy is meticulous in his care. Look at how the mercy flows, how it spills out of him. Look at what he does. It says he came to him, bandaged up his wound. Doing what? Pouring oil and wine. Oil soothes. Wine's got a little alcohol in it, so it's got that medicinal effect of killing infection. He pours the the oil and the wine on him. So he, he gets his stuff out, and he takes out of his own, and he starts pouring wound by wound. The man's beat up. He's left for dead. Wound by wound, he's doing that. He's taking strips of clothing. We don't know where he gets them, but he's taking strips of clothing and he's bandaging this guy up. I don't know if he tore his own shirt up. We have no idea, but he's bandaging the guy. Look at how meticulous. And then he put him on his own beast. That means, hey brother, you're walking the rest of the way. The the donkey that you were riding on this trip, you're going to walk beside him now because you're putting on your beast this guy who's wounded. Notice, look at how meticulous. And brought him to an inn. And then took care of him. You know what he did? He spent the night taking care of this man. He's on a journey. Interrupted. God says, okay, time out. Whatever you were doing, it's kingdom time. You're going to be about this right now. So meticulously, he bandages, he cares, he carries, he brings him, and then he stays overnight with him at the end, ministering to him, making sure. And look at what happens the next day. Verse 35, and the next day he took out two denarii, two days' wages, and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. Whatever more you spend when I return, what he's going to do is come back and check on him. I will repay you. He is meticulous. Why? Because this man is made in the image of God. Don't ever, don't ever look at somebody and say, what trash, what scum. Don't ever look on a human being, no matter what they've done, 
without acknowledging that every man, woman, boy, and girl were made in the image of God. Their worth does not derive from what you think of them. It doesn't derive from what they've done to you. It does not derive from how they have lived their lives. Their worth derives from the simple fact that God created each one. And each one was created in His image. However marred, however broken, they bear His image. He saw that in this man. The Samaritans and the Jews were enemies. Heated enemies. They had a difference of religious, social, and political views. They were radically at enmity with each other to the point that they would not even give each other greetings. If they passed each other on the road, they would snub each other. Jesus holds this man who was an enemy of Israel up and says, this is the one, letter G, mercy finally is sacrificial in its nature. Giving and having responsibility beyond the minimum required. He could have just dumped him off. He could have just dropped him off. He could have just whatever, just the minimum. But no, he stays overnight with him. He gives extra, two extra days wages to care for the guy and says, hey man, put it on my tab if it takes more than this to take care of him. When I get back, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll pay up everything. You can trust me on this. And that's what happens. What goes on now? Look at the end of the story. And then I want to show you a video. And I want you to watch for every aspect of this story in this video. So you can get that ready, Peggy. We're going to go in just a second. It says, and, and he said, Who is the neighbor? He said, the one who showed mercy toward him. Okay? Jesus didn't say, well, go and be his neighbor. He says, go and do likewise. Go and do the same. What's he saying? It's very simple. If you love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if you love your neighbor as yourself, that is a mark of redemption. That means that someone has filled you. God in Christ has filled you with Himself. And whatever fills us is going to spill out of us. And he said to the man, this is the conduct of the redeemed. The redeemed are people of mercy. Let's watch this video. <laughs> 